Jewish Latin Princess episode 177, Rabbi Daniel Lapin. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. We have a male figure again today on the show. If you didn't catch our first male guest on this podcast, head over to episode 172, last Monday's episode, to check out my husband's appearance on the show. Lots of lovely reviews on that. Thank you so much. I had fun recording it, and I'm happy that you enjoyed it. And today, I have another wonderful male guest, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I've admired Rabbi Lappin's work for a really long time, and I'm delighted to have him here. Rabbi Lappin is known worldwide as America's rabbi. He's a noted rabbinic scholar, popular international speaker, and best-selling author. He hosts the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast, as well as co-hosting the Ancient Jewish Wisdom TV show on the TCT network with his wife, Susan Lappin. He's the author of multiple books, one of my favorites being Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money. And today we talk about money. Do you have conflicting feelings about money? So many of us do, right? Today's conversation should do away with that. But we go even deeper. We're ruffling some feathers possibly around here, but these are important conversations. And Rabbi Lappin is more than happy to be upfront and candid with us. Marriage or money? Ladies, what if you make more money than your husband? Rabbi Lappin is not as bullish on this as my husband was last week. But I think as women, we have to hear this message and Be aware of the male ego and how it works. Debunking the idea of a gold digger. Ever heard that term? Rabbi Lappin gets real on what women should know before they get married and why a prospect's financial situation is important to assess before tying the knot. His upbringing and how he became the Jewish voice on people's finances and family life, both in the Jewish and non-Jewish world. All of this and more with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Rabbi Lappin, thank you for being here. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. How are you? Couldn't be better, Yael, and you didn't have to twist my arm. I've been looking forward to chatting. <laughs> I do have to say, I haven't told you this, but it is really an honor because you were one of, you know, I have to say you were one of those people who really has had an impact, um, not only in my personal life and my finances, as I was um, working on my relationship with money and, you know, getting more serious about money, your one of your books, I should say, Thou Shall Prosper, which is right here next to me, um, was really eye-opening and enlightening. But it also, from a professional perspective, it really inspired me to, to change my focus and really combine what I knew about money and what my experience had been with money with my Jewish upbringing and the Jewish teachings that I had been anyway teaching to women. So you were really an inspiration to really bring this work that I've been doing to the fore. So thank you. I'm very happy to hear it because uh, uh, the, the, the entire approach that, uh, that suffuses my thinking and my experience in this field is that um, Money and financial matters cannot be isolated from spiritual and religious matters and from health, physical and health matters and uh, from from social matters. And we are holistic and money is a part of not everything. Absolutely. And, and yes, we are holistic, right? That's Judaism. So, you know, maybe that's the perfect segue to get us started before we even talk about your new book, which I'm really looking forward to hearing about. But how did you, um, you know, try to, let's see if we could connect the dots for listeners about how did you get into this line of work? Because it's not so usual for us to see a community rabbi who's always who's, who's also been involved in the business world who decides to also be very open and vocal and prolific about this holistic approach and combining um you know our jewish wisdom and spirituality into our business lives into our money management so what how did this happen trace the dots a little bit for us well you know there's a general rule and that is that you can either follow hashem's you can follow God's plan for your life, uh, or you can get whacked. <laughs> and um, 
you know, that's largely what it is, I think. Um, I was the rabbi of an absolutely beautiful community in Los Angeles, California, that I was privileged to plant. And um, and I, I loved and continue to love the people there. And uh, it was quite wonderful. But, I, I, you know, I was being led in, a, in another direction. Mm. Um, just before my father passed, uh, his last instruction to me was to start writing. And I said, never written anything. And your teacher, who was also my teacher, uh, Rabbi Elia Lapian, never wrote anything. And he said, nonetheless, you must. And um, for me, writing is a little bit like uh, sitting at a keyboard and cutting my wrists and bleeding. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard. And so, uh, and so I, I took a sabbatical from uh, my synagogue in order to do that. And hmm. during that time, completely uh, fortuitously, but obviously part of God's plan for a, for a broader stage on which to dance, uh, I was invited to host a radio show for a few weeks in um, uh, replacing a, a host who was on vacation. And I, I loved that, and uh, and radio loved me, and it was a it was a love affair, and um, and so I started doing a lot of radio, and I, I ended up with a radio show on uh, a very large West Coast station, KSFO, out of Seattle. Although I never lived, excuse me, KSFO out of San Francisco. Although I never lived in San Francisco, and mm -hmm. uh, that resulted in me doing a lot of speeches, particularly for non-Jewish audiences, and. Uh, one of the questions people used to ask me, Yael, where, wherever I went, uh, when when they when they when they realized I, I didn't have really thin skin and I wasn't that easy to offend, um, people started asking me. You know, we got a question we want to ask you. I mean, you know, and please, you know, they always issued this caveat: uh, you know, we're we're not anti-Semitic, we have <laughs> a, a bigoted bone in our bodies, but how come Jews are so disproportionately good with money? Mm. And I thought, you know, that's a really good question. Has anybody really looked into Torah sources in order to try and get an absolutely unvarnished understanding of what was God's plan for human economic interaction? And um, what I found truly astounded me. It turned my life upside down, my my intellectual life and my life of understanding these things. And at that point, uh, I could not help myself. After I'd done a couple of years on this, I couldn't help myself from writing. All of a sudden, writing became easy. And wow. the book you held up, Thou Shalt Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money, uh, poured out of me uh, like a Niagara cascade of, of words. In fact, it had to be edited down. There were too many. And later on, I issued a second book containing some of the stuff that couldn't fit in the first. But, uh, but there it is. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the long story. Wow. I, I loved how you started this because I think this is a general <laughs> lesson for all of us and how we have to be so aware of God's divine intervention and the messages, right? You could have not listened to your father's advice. And God forbid, that would have meant that all of this was in you, that God knew that this was this potential that you weren't ready because we're not ready to step into that. That's that, you know, we're so scared. We don't know what's on the other side, but our creator does know. And you went with it, <laughs> even though it hurts to write and look what unfolded and look how much you've done for the world. Thanks to this. Well, it's um, it's it's been a privileged ride. Yeah. Yeah. So we have listeners. We have to listen. God knows what he's doing. We have to be available with a capital A. God, use me. I'm here to serve you. So let's give some clarity. Let's get some clarity from you. What is the Torah's view on money? Because there is sometimes so much confusion around this. There is. And it's, it's very difficult to do because, Yael, all of us have been impacted in one direction or another. Some people are looking for a validation of uh, unrestrained capitalism in the Torah, and they search and search and then believe they found that. And, and plenty of people, uh, including rabbis, uh, believe that they found socialism in the Torah. Hmm. And so it's, it's all too easy to project and I decided that the only way not to fall into that trap myself was essentially to, you know, to, to let the Torah speak, number one, uh, instead of telling you what it says, let it speak for itself. And number two, uh, realizing that life in this world is far too complex 
to be resolved by means of one or two nifty slogans, and that um, I could find a verse to support almost any position. The question is, when you put it all together and it becomes one vast fabric, one vast tapestry, uh, coherent and, uh, and consistent from end to end, what does that show? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and that, was, that was important because you could, especially in Proverbs, in the book of Mishlei, you can really find a verse that'll seem to say pretty much whatever you want it to. And, and you really have to be, be careful. You know, it's a little bit like English um, uh, sayings and aphorisms. One of them is absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. So the soldier going on deployment, leaving his girlfriend behind, and he says to himself, hey, you know what? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And they're just getting on the, the, the truck to take him away. And his friend leans over and says, well, you can kiss your girlfriend goodbye, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So which is it? Does abs- is absence good for the relationship or when you're out of sight, does it? Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, there are expressions like look before you leap, right? Mm-hmm. Really don't. And that makes sense. And then as soon as you got comfortable with that one, somebody teaches you he who hesitates is lost. So that, well, you better not hesitate. So which is it? And uh, biblical verses are a lot like that as well. That's why one needs the Talmud, one needs the halachic system, and, uh, and, um, and one really has to go right away. So you ask, what, what is it? And um, I think uh, perhaps um, one good place to start, a fairly good place to start is, uh, is perhaps... <laughs> right at the very beginning, <clears throat> and we we discover that uh, in response uh, to a sin, the precise details of which we'll leave aside for the moment, but on a, as a result of a sin, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden, and um, and God says, and people assume this is part of the punishment, but it actually is subsequent to the atonement. God says to Adam, "By the sweat of your brow." Uh, you will eat bread. And um, that's not a punishment. That is a, that's part of the deliverance. The, 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 the punishment was banishing and, uh, and death coming into the world. But what God says now is by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread. Uh, bread is an unusual substance, never been mentioned before. Mm. And um, <clears throat> it's a substance which is unique to human beings. Animals don't make bread. Furthermore, it's a substance that requires deferment of gratification. Uh, If you like eating the dough like my son does, then you're not going to have bread. (laughs) Number two, it requires um, great collaboration between different people. The farmer, the miller, the baker, to name just three. But it re- to, to get bread into the world requires a lot of human collaboration. And so it's not an accident that one of the things that uh, the Torah tells us is that the word bread, wherever it appears in scripture, is actually a metaphor for money. And uh, in many languages, not just English, you have phrases like, can you lend me some bread? Or have you got any dough on you? So it's a little less common in America today, but among people who sort of remember um, in the 50s and all the way back, that expression was very common. There was an understanding that bread or dough have to do with money. And, uh, and so the, the concept is that it flows from a statement that God makes in chapter two of Bereshit, of Genesis, uh, not good for man to be alone. And uh, that, that expression, not good for man to be alone, not good, is only used one other time in the Torah, and that's when uh, Jethro speaks to Moses and says, it's not good what you're doing. And in both cases, uh, it referred to human isolation. Uh, Jethro was complaining to his son-in-law that by taking everything onto his own shoulders, he was keeping people's disagreements alive instead of getting them resolved quickly. As they stood in line, their Mm -hmm. differences and resentments expanded and grew and developed. So he said, not good. In the same way, God said, not good for man to be alone. Jethro said, not good what you're doing. You're making people isolated with one, from one another. And so um, in, in the same way that, and I'm sure you, you know nothing about children squabbling with each other, uh, Yael, 
nothing. <laughs> I have four. In, they never do that. That's right. But in, in our family, we have seven children. There was a fair bit of squabbling. And, uh, it, you know, it was extremely irritating. Well, if squabbling kids irritates any father, then you can be sure that it does the same thing for our father in heaven. Uh, Avina Shabashamayim is not happy mm-hmm. at all when his children squabble with each other. Conversely, uh, I still remember with great thrill the point at which uh, the children had matured a bit and there was no more squabbling. And what's more, they were going out of their way to help each other and do things for each other. You know, that thrill I can still feel in my heart. I remember it so vividly. And so in exactly the same way, um, God wants us to connect. His very first statement is not good for man to be alone. Can't, we can't have isolated people. And, um, and what he does then is sets up a world in which isolated people um, suffer short, painful, brutal lives, basically. Mm. And um, uh, homeless people. The problem there is not homeless. Homeless is the consequence. The problem is isolation from other people. Right whether it's substance abuse or family breakdown or whatever it is. But the the one uh, correlating characteristic of uh, people who are in bad shape are they're disconnected. Mm -hmm. People died during a Chicago heat wave a few years ago. They were not people who had children. They were old people, but they were people who were disconnected. Uh, Japan has a tragic um, condition. They have a Japanese name for it, but it's elderly disconnected people who die. And nobody even knows about it till, you know, till days or sometimes weeks later. It's very, very. Right. Um, so God sets up a situation that uh, being disconnected is really, really not a good idea. Um, you need to build family. That's one of the critical things that is as important as money. And it goes hand in hand with money. It's not yes. that uh, poverty in America is not a function of race, as many people think. It's a function of singleness. Mm. Single men are the poorest people in America. Uh, married, uh, married black men are wealthier on average than single white men. Wow. Uh, so the reason uh, blackness, excuse me, poverty permeates uh, the black community is largely because marriage and family is in such bad shape. Mm-hmm. Part of America, unfortunately. The consequence to that is poverty. And so um, the the hardest thing, I think, to, to relate to in the, the Taurus perspective on money is that money is not the goal ever. Hmm. It is entirely the consequence of doing what you're supposed to do. Wow. What are you supposed to do? Be obsessively preoccupied with the needs and the desires of God's other children. And money flows as a result of that. That is it. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Now, to expound a little bit on that, um, and that was incredible. The there's still I find um, there's still this achiness and this shame that people carry around money, right? Um, um, like it's deceitful and it's icky, and and so I wonder, which maybe you alluded to at the beginning, I wonder if it has something to do with having been in exile for so long and what should be a Jewish mindset on money now become impacted by other cultures and other views, right? And so, because from what you're saying, this tool, money, that is not the goal, but but the consequence of a way of life is actually not a shameful thing at all. <laughs> it's actually more than that. Um, it's, it's such a shame because our culture conveys this. You know, uh, have you heard the word stinking rich? Yes. Well, it's actually not at all stinky to be rich. It's really stinky to be poor. Yeah. But that's not what people say. Mm-hmm. You know, have you heard have you heard them say when somebody gives a charitable gift, you hear people sometimes say, oh, it's so wonderful to see him giving back to society. It's a terrible phrase. Yes. It means that if charity is giving back to society, then when you make the money in the first place, you must be taking from society. Yes, exactly. And Which so is not obviously true. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a terrible lie. It's a terrible lie because in order to have made that money, you must have been giving a service to society, a great service. Well, that's exactly right. There's only one entity or shall I say two entities that can take my money from force. 
you know, one is a, a man with a pistol and the other is the, um, the, in, the internal revenue service, the government. Mm-hmm. But every, everyone else who gets my money gets it by delivering to me something I value more than the money. Otherwise, I wouldn't do the deal. It's a voluntary transaction. Yeah. So that's really important uh, to understand. This is really uh, crucial. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and so um, people fall into this trap of thinking that there's something shameful about it, partially because of the culture. Um, you know, if one does a survey, and I've been watching this since the 1980s, to see who are the most wicked people on primetime television. I mean, I don't have to tell you who commits the most homicides in America, and, and this has been true for decades. But if you watch primetime television or movies, most murders are committed by successful business professionals. Wow. You know, the scene is standard as the camera pans up the gleaming skyscraper, zooms in on the corner office on the top floor, and (laughs) the young environmental hero confronting the evil businessman, telling him they've discovered his business is polluting the environment. And then the businessman opens the top right-hand drawer of his desk and pulls out what we all know every business professional keeps in their desk, and that is a stainless steel 357 Magnum revolver. <laughs> this is the scene. I mean, it plays out in a million different ways, and it's because the, the business professional, particularly the successful one, is bad. Uh, they talk about um, all the time, they talk about uh, CEOs being overpaid. Mm-hmm. How? About uh, football quarterbacks. Yes, I also I always wondered about that. How come that's or not movie stars? Right. And the answer is that I look at a quarterback and I watch him play, and I say, you know, even with a robust ego, I have to admit I couldn't run with a ball like that. So I guess he deserves his money. Or I look at a, a movie star and I say, you know, I've got a robust ego, but even I have to admit I'm not quite as good looking as he is. Mm-hmm. I may be more interesting, but I'm not as good looking. That's the robust ego part. So, um, uh, so I get it. But when I see the, uh, the, the, the CEO or the business professional making a lot, I think to myself, what's he doing? He's just sitting at a desk and he's, you know, why is he making the big money? And nobody understands that a business leader brings so much to the table. When Solomon Brothers was collapsing uh, the investment bank was collapsing in 91. Um, the, I mean, the government stopped allowing them to participate in treasury auctions. The, the company was hemorrhaging capital. It was doomed. It was all over. And one thing happened. A man called Warren Buffett agreed to become CEO. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the company saved. That's all it took. A business professional puts everything on the line. People don't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, With- And I I love that message because for the audience of women, very often women in the audience, you know, at some point, either either while raising our children, but as the children get older, we want to be more creative. We want to start our own businesses or we want to grow our businesses or grow in our careers, whatever it might be. And I find that there's a lot of holding ourselves back with this, again, this feeling of the struggle with charging and putting our price tag on our product oh, yeah, or that's, service, that's right? That's the biggest problem that uh, your species experiences. Yeah. The biggest problem. Um, and I mean, there are so many women. There are also a lot of moms who are home and who run very capable marketing businesses, advertising business, internet operated. Uh, there's a lot of women doing good, good work. Yeah. And, um, I have done speeches for several of these women's groups. It's always fascinating because I ask, what's your biggest problem? The biggest problem is, they say, setting price. They don't actually mean setting price. They mean telling a potential client that uh, the engagement will require a... um, A monetary uh, transaction. (laughs) That's right. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to need you to commit to uh, $4,000 a month for Mm -hmm. the next six months and that they find it terribly difficult to do it. And so that's exactly the thing. When somebody finds it difficult to say how much their services are going to cost you, you know that deep down they have profound misgivings, that they're not making money, but that they are taking money. Uh And so obviously you feel bad about that. Right. I mean, I'm taking money away from you. 
because they don't understand, they don't quite get this principle that it's completely voluntary and that person is happy to, to pay you. I mean, you know, there was a few years ago when my wife and I uh, wanted a babysitter and we got a young girl lives down the street and um, asked her how much would it, would it be? And uh, she said, oh, you can pay me when you get home. So I knew right away she was uncomfortable stating a number. And uh, we came home. The kids were in bed. She didn't have to do dishes. She did dishes. Everything was terrific. And uh, I said to her, how much do I owe you? And her eyes went down and she started looking at the carpet and her toes started doing patterns. on the. Um, She was having so much trouble. And then eventually she said, uh, um, would uh, $25 do? Now, we'd been gone for three hours and I was expecting to pay, you know, probably $15 an hour. So I said to her, no, I actually don't think it'll work. She said, oh, I can make it less. And I said, no, um, I actually want to pay you $45. And she said, why? I said, because you're worth it to us. You've done a great job. And next time we need somebody and I call you up, I want you to remember that I paid you well. Mm-hmm. That's why. Wow. And it's, it's, I, I think it changed the way she was uh, seeing things a little bit. But Absolutely. For women entrepreneurs, uh, it's so important. I mean, the chapters of my book where I deal with the, the understanding of what money is and that money is essentially spiritual and what it's doing with respect to human relationships, really, really important for women entrepreneurs to understand and to internalize because it actually flows to the bottom line. Yes. People are not getting what they could get simply because they're uncomfortable uh, giving a figure. And by the way, not only are you not getting what you're supposed to be getting, but on the flip side of that, your client also is not possibly getting the transformation. I mean, I'm talking specifically about services here, but there is a, a, I often feel like transformation comes from a transaction, right? There needs to be an investment from somebody's part in order to commit to whatever that work is. Very much so. So this is important. Now, talking about women, let's switch it over um, a little bit to marriage. And this will probably get us to our to your new book. When we when we get married, Rabbi, as you will know, we are joining two money stories, right? Two money paradigms, along with everything else that we're joining. And so we have to become really intentional about editing those two stories, understanding them and and creating our own new story and, and deciding what's our financial life going to actually be like? What do we want? Right. But for many, this is so hard to navigate. As you know, money causes so much stress in a marriage, so yes. many fights and, and some marriages, it can't even be talked about. Right. It's complete taboo, complete silence. Um, what can you say to the women in the audience, most of them who are married to help them navigate this within their marriages? Well, there are a lot of different situations uh, that people find themselves in, particularly in the Jewish community. Um, and, and again, uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to uh, inadvertently offend anybody because these are painful circumstances. <coughs> I don't want to sound trite or trivial about it in any way whatsoever. And, and I understand that, that people hurt in this. I also understand that the truth is um, uh, a, a rare visitor at the table of political correctness these days. And so much of what I am obliged to say uh, is stuff that uh, flies in the face of popular culture. It's very, very disturbing to people. For instance, um, I, I will tell this to you without a, uh, without a quiver in my voice, but, but I know that this is very problematic. And that is that... Uh, if you make more money than your husband, I say to women, your marriage is probably doomed. Wow. You may as well know that. If your career is more important to the marriage than your husband's is, you probably, your marriage is not long for this world. Now, you wow. Know, it's almost impossible to cure and to fix. Should we even try to fix it? Well, you know, the, fortunately, there's not that many. It, it does happen. And there are situations like that. And they don't last. The marriages do not last long. Um, you know, uh, uh, 
I mean, there was a, a beautiful study done quite recently. Uh, back in the mid-90s, they used to run a feature in the weekend New York Times. It was in the style section. They used to run um, marriage announcements or engagement announcements of uh, couples. And almost invariably, the couples they selected uh, were very high-performing women. Mm -hmm. All women who uh, had careers at... Uh, major um, law firms, uh, finance places. I mean, the, you know, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, um, Lehman Brothers. I mean, that's where these women all were. And the study involves something very, very clever, which is to go back uh, 15 years later and find these women, see how they're doing. Because if there is ever a group of women that should by now be running their firms on Wall Street or their law firms on Madison Avenue in New York, these are the women. And they weren't hard to find because so much information was given in these um, marriage announcements. And um, she found um, virtually all of them. And uh, almost without exception, these women had all quit work and were home raising children. Mm. Now, that is a reality. Nobody forced them. These were powerful women from powerful families with powerful connections. They, there was no glass ceiling. This was every microscopic morsel in their body was telling them, I want to be with my babies. Now, the overwhelming majority of women are not so fortunate. They can't afford that. Right. But, but these are, are certain realities. Um, the Bible doesn't lie. Uh, the Bible isn't to tell us what to think about God. The Bible is to tell us what God thinks about us. Mm -hmm. and, um, and to tell us how we work. It's like the manufacturer's instruction manual that came in the glove box of high quality cars. Uh, that, that's what it is. The manufacturer is telling us how we operate. And so uh, this, this, to be aware, for a woman to understand uh, a, a, a male ego, <laughs> how closely it is tied to money and to sex. The, these are very, very closely paralleled. Um, the idea that... Um, that making money and making babies is a very, very similar kind of activity in the sense that it requires two people. A disconnected person cannot make money. Um, it, it requires tremendous focus on the other person. We call it customer service. Yes. Um, um, we, we it's pleasurable. Well, serving other human beings is pleasurable. The money that comes from it is the result. It's not the thing that motivates us. It's not what drives us. And that's one of the reasons that there's no word for retirement in Hebrew, because retirement suggests I'm in it for the money. When I got enough money, I quit working. That's not what we work for. We work to serve other people. Right. And so um, the, uh, the, the, the marriage part of it is absolutely crucial. Um, men who, uh, and we know this, I mean, uh, unfortunately, there have been enough instances in the last uh, four or five decades where parts of America have shut down, the Rust Belt, the whole Pittsburgh area when steel and coal declined. Uh, the Northeast went through its decline in the 1980s. And we know, unfortunately, that this created a tremendous male dysfunction. Mm. Men are not able to make money. There are medical conditions that, flow in a, that, that result from that. That's not true for women. So wow. it's far more important to men than it is to women. And I, I mean, there are many women are going to say, how dare you? But most of them who say that to me are about 22 years old. <laughs> they've never been married. It's true. <laughs> and they, they, yeah, they just, they, they, they've also never had a real relationship with a man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But now along those lines, there is a, a popular trend, you might be familiar with this, among, I would say, uh, groups of uh, ortho observant Jewish women um, based on, I think her name is Laura Doyle's, um, the author of The Surrendered Wife. The Surrendered this, Wife, yes. Yeah, there's this trend of, you know, uh, that she advises to allow the husband to be re solely responsible for their the finances. I personally, I'm not a proponent of that approach. I stand for a more 
for more balance, for complete transparency and everybody being on the same page and having decision making power rather than one dominating the management. Although I do agree with you that as women, we have to understand the sensitivities and the, the ego and the need for respect of our husbands. I still do not um, propose that we just give over the responsibility. I think this is a unit. This is we, we want to build together. So that's my sense. I wonder, what do you think about this? Should this be the man's domain only or should well, the woman be involved? And if there's so, no how couple, much? there is no couple that is exactly like any other couple. Uh huh. Everything is always completely separate and different. And, um, uh, I think what Laura's talking about and, and what I, I do completely understand um, are situations, and I, I've had this, where women call my radio show and, and they say, I don't understand what to, what to do. My husband's just not pulling his weight. Mm. There are a lot of women in the situation. Um, and, and it's important, again, to understand, you know, there are, there are situations like that in Scripture. Samson's father was a person like that. Uh, all you hear about is his mother. And, you know, his dad was sort of, me too, me too, you know, talk to me. But he was a pathetic, he was a pathetic man. Hmm. Uh, the prophetess Deborah's husband, Lapidot. Once again, you know, we don't hear a whole lot. There are a lot of situations like, well, not a lot, but there's some. And uh, it's very important for a woman to understand, once again, that in a situation like that, one of the very best things that a woman can do is say, you know what, this, I'm going to leave this to you. I know you're going to make it all work. Mm. And guess what? When she stops being school mom, we really don't like being married to school moms. We don't. You don't. Yes. Stop we the really, nagging. We really ladies. don't. <laughs> and so when you stop trying to run our lives for us, we we step up to the plate and most times hit it out of the ballpark. Wow. Wow. But again, it so has in, to in come with sense, an intentionality in that sense. So, yeah. Sorry. Forgive me. No, continue in that sense. Um, no, I interrupted you. I, I, I'd finish. No, I, I think what you're saying is has to come with an intentionality um, and it's very nuanced. Yeah. In many cases, um, you know, and I'm sure you and your husband are in this situation, you, you have a very smooth running machine. In other words, you're, you know, I'm not saying your marriage doesn't have its moments. Everyone does. But, but in terms of, uh, you know, your work and his work and what you each do and how you make it work and how you, in, in the midst of all that, take care of communal responsibilities and family, you know, you probably have it down. But an awful lot of people don't. But it, it also took work. It also it took a huge in, amount of work. It took intentional work and understanding that this is a beautiful part of marriage, that this is a yeah. beautiful resource that God has given us that we needed, and we need to be proactive about it, and we need to communicate about it, even when it's uncomfortable. And this is the key, even when it's hard, and we have to understand each other's sensitivities on the topic, and we have to understand both our money stories and the homes we came, we grew up in and what we learned and what we're ready to change and what maybe we're not ready to, right? So it has, it, it does take a tremendous amount of work, but I do believe that when we can, when we do that work, um, and it's mostly communication, this is the key word here, obviously, right? We are in for a, a deeper layer of connection with our spouse. It's, 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 it's a level of intimacy that unfortunately, we don't get if we don't strive to go to that uncomfortable place to deal with money as a joint unit. No, that, that's exactly right. But uh, uh, the egalitarian message that has been injected into the culture for a few decades already um, is, is hugely problematic. It's done a lot of damage to women and to men. Mm. So, uh, for instance, you know, after, think about it, after 60 years of gender egalitarianism, wouldn't you have thought, Yael, that by now, of all the people you know who are married, wouldn't you have thought that in half of them, the husband went on one knee and said to the girl, please, would you marry me and accept this ring and make me the happiest man in the world? But you'd have to agree that after 60 years of egalitarianism, at least half the marriages came about because the woman went on one knee, held out a Rolex watch and said, please accept this watch and marry me and make me the happiest woman in the world. Yep. Do you know what percentage of marriages come about because the woman proposed? I'm scared to find out. Yeah, it seems to be lower than 1%. <laughs> As a matter of fact, YouTube even has a sad genre of movies of women proposals that went horribly wrong. They all go horribly wrong. <laughs> And so, That's the good news, I guess. 
so it's just important to understand that men and women are not the same. Yeah. Absolutely not the same. Uh, our needs are not the same, whether we're talking about sex or whether we're talking about money, uh, whether we're talking about uh, communication even. Yeah. Uh, we don't like talking. We like doing. Now, we agree that when we get married, we're going to have to do more talking than, than, than we used to do. But there are certain things we'll never understand. Um, when the phone rings and I answer it and somebody says, Rabbi Lappin, Sam here. I say, hi, Sam, how are you doing? He said, fine, thank you. And there's a pause. And he says, how are things with you? And I say, just fine, Sam. <laughs> What's going on in my mind, Yael? <laughs> what does he need? <laughs> Would you get to the point? What did you phone me for? And Sam says, you know, I just—I was just thinking about you today, and I—I I, I just thought I haven't spoken to you for a while. Sam, it's ten o'clock in the morning. Is there something I can do for you? If not, you know, send me an email. <laughs> but we do understand that our wives can get off the phone after half an hour, and you say, "What was that about?" So oh, nothing. It was. Okay. <laughs> but you know what? If we're to learn that, that's really important. Yes. Social connections in a couple are made by the wife. They're no mm -hmm. wife, not by the guy. Anybody's birthday. I don't even know. I know nothing. But Absolutely. I know that everyone in my extended family gets birthday cards and birthday presents. You know why? Because my wife goes on Amazon. That's why. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And speaking of which, I know your wife, Susan, has been a tremendous um, source of support and encouragement, not just behind the scenes throughout all these years, but she actively supports your work. You work together. So yeah, we with do. you, you do. You do it beautifully. So with that also, how do you and your wife manage your finances? How does that dance go? In oh, so that that part isn't so bad, but the <laughs> together is really rough and <laughs> Uh, we were thinking of doing a book for couples who are thinking of working together. And then we realized we'd be really sure it would just be one word. Don't. Don't. <laughs> it's very hard. Um, it's very hard. It's very hard not to carry business concerns that you share into the bedroom. Yeah. It's hard, um, particularly in, uh, in many cases, men are more ADD. Is that you're familiar? Men are mm -hmm. Um, uh, ADD than women are. So when husbands and wives do a business together, it's very, um, very common, um, more common than not, for the guy to be the detailed person and the woman to be the overall administrator and supervisor. Um, you know, if 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 somebody is going to keep track of the cash flow statement, it's very often going to be the woman. Yeah, that means that um, many times she's <laughs> she's issuing directions. Yeah. Now, guys, you again, I know it's a modern world out there. They don't take directions very well. <laughs> Men do not do well taking instructions from women. That's one of the reasons that although it's it's a uh, anthropomorphism of an advanced degree, we visualize God as male because, frankly, I don't think we'd listen to him if he wasn't. Wow. I never thought of that. That's <laughs> and you can see this, by the way, Yael, tragically, Single moms have trouble with their boys much much more than their girls. Mm. Wow. Um, boys will take a man more seriously than they will a woman, a woman in terms of instructions. So um, so this is something <laughs> I mean, we've, we've had our moments on this. There's no question about it. But um, but we, we do work together. Uh, we did a, a joint pod. We do we do it quite often. But just a few weeks ago, we did a joint podcast on marriage. Uh huh. Uh, we always laugh because whenever we do something together, we sometimes tag team speeches and appearances. Uh, we invariably get emails from people afterwards, and they write to me saying, "You mustn't let your wife interrupt so much." <laughs> and then we get letters to her saying, "Why doesn't your husband let you speak more?" <laughs> 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 That's fantastic. So now tell us about the impetus for this wonderful new book on marriage and money. Yeah, well, it's um, uh, it, it flows from this basic idea uh, that and again, we've got to we've got to kill dead a popular expression called gold digger. Mm -hmm. It's a dreadful expression um, and it um, uh, it completely undermines the confidence of young women 
in wanting to know about the financial prospects of the guy they're dating. Yes, let's go there, please. <laughs> and they're 100% correct. And we, we taught all our daughters as well. Don't let anybody try and discourage you. Oh, you're a gold digger. Why do you, you must, don't you care about him as a person? What you have to understand, and this is something that the great American psychologist, William James, wrote about so beautifully. And that is that uh, the relationship a man has with his money, mm -hmm. vastly more than just his bank account. It tells you about his relationships with other people. It tells you about his responsibility. It tells you about if he's a man who, who can defer gratification in the interests of the long term. Um, it tells you what other men think of him. Uh, a guy's money situation is hugely important. It tells you a great deal. And so um, women have to be really, really comfortable. Uh, it's got to be asked right up front. And I'm, I'm not in favor of... Uh, what in the Jewish world we call shatchanim, matchmakers, mm -hmm. come a little bit of an epidemic where God's plan for a man to see a woman and to be attracted to her and to make inquiries and to try and meet her and get to know her, that's gone by the wayside. Now mothers check through resumes and uh, it's a mistake. It's a really, really bad mistake because at some point or another, it's really valuable. And I'm not saying this has to happen on a first date, but neither does it happen after you've been going out for six months, which you shouldn't be doing anyway. Yep. And um, the, uh, the woman has to say to the guy, talk to me about money. You know, tell me where you stand, where you think you're going. What are your plans? This is like really important. And I cannot tell you how many seminary girls have cried on, on our dining room table saying <clears throat> that they came back uh, from um, what what you might call Bible college, okay? And they came back um, completely uh, idealistic and very desirous about marrying a man, um, what my Christian friends would say, marrying a man in ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, basically a guy who is not thinking about money, is thinking about ways to serve God, and, she, and she's crying. She's got two kids and she commutes an hour every day to go to work. And uh, a housekeeper from another country is looking after her kids. And she's saying, why didn't anybody tell me that money is important? This is a real problem, Rabbi. This is re a real, real problem. Why? Why? Why are we not doing better for our, for our kids, for our teens, for our, for our boys and our girls? This holistic approach, this integration of Torah and practical life. Well, Torah is the key to practical life. Exactly. If you're and not I a practical to... person, then you don't know anything about the Torah. Exactly. And I see the same situation. I have students with the same situation. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's a problem in the system. Um, again, um, you know, if, if, we were in a, if we were doing a, 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 um, a seminar on the condition of the Jewish community, I could wax extensive <laughs> topic and what has gone wrong with Jewish education, what went wrong in the aftermath of World War II. Um, <clears throat> but in general, uh, although I'm sure we have many, many people in the audience who are not Jewish, you know, if I just took 45 seconds to give you an example, and I, I, I think it would be, they'd find it interesting as well. As you know, there is no there is no requirement in the Torah that Jewish men have to wear a black hat. Right. There isn't such a thing. Um, it is not uncommon for um, fissures to break and for um, great uh, gaps to grow between fathers and sons where the son doesn't want to wear a black hat. Hmm. And I remember talking to one father. I said, how did you get over this? How did you... I mean, you, you stop talking to your son because he wouldn't, because in your mind, wearing a black hat is like fasting on the day of atonement, but it's not true, but you think it's true. You think it's true because you're not a very learned person and you are influenced by the uh, religious mood of your society. Hmm. He said, well, I got over it because I realized it could have been worse. He could have insisted on coming to synagogue with a blue shirt on. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And this, and this is a guy who has a lovely son. So the point being that when we replace God's word uh, with contemporary uh, fads, mm. we end up in big trouble. And that's what we've done. 
Yeah, I do have to say that you reminded me. I'm so grateful my, that my husband, when we when we were dating, this we these were open conversations that we had. And you know, I don't know that at the time, even even though I was a mature adult already and I was a professional, I don't even realize that I appreciated so much that he lay the cards on the table and he said, "This is my financial situation. What's yours? Let's talk about it." And I went with it. I. I but I don't even like now I appreciate that we did, you know, and I give them credit for that. And so, ladies, you have to have these conversations. No, and, and many young girls do not know how thrilling it is to go out with a mature man instead of a boy. Yep, yep, yep. This is yep. the statement of a mature man saying, okay, we've got to talk. This is one of the things we have to discuss. Let's get it on the table. Yep, yep. It's super important because it's going to be a huge part of your marriages. Now, Rabbi, going back to let's go into your life a little bit. You know, as you know, so much of our mindset around money is impacted by the way we grew up. Are there any lessons from childhood that stand out as having shaped the way you are with money in adulthood? Um, You know, my my father was a very important teacher of mine in 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 many areas. He was a great rabbi, and uh, I did my best to to study from him. But there were also areas in which he was a child of his upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so he was a, a scion of a very, of what, I don't know if this means anything to you. I think it probably will. If I tell you that he was um, the, uh, the descendant of a tradition that was very Lithuanian. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what that means is uh, very limited emotional openness. Mm-hmm. That's one. That's one thing, and uh, and another one is that you see um, after several centuries of horrifying economic oppression in Eastern Europe, Jews made the dreadful mistake of making the best of it and accepting it, and then almost turning it into an asset. Mm. And so, um, what that results in. Yael is the creation of an almost mathematical equation, which reads poverty equals piety. The poorer I am, the more obvious the proof that I'm devoted to God. Yeah, and that seeped so much into our, our mindset. Yes, it did. It did. And so I was, um, I was, I was well into my 30s before I was even aware hmm. problematic this was. And I said, you know, I've got to, I've got to restart. I've got to kind of be reborn. That's a, an expression we don't use in our culture so much, but it really applied to me. I have to sort of be reborn, and I've got to start studying all over again, with with a removal of the overlay. It's like a vinyl overlay that was coloring everything. I now have to go back and start at Genesis chapter one, verse one. Uh, open the first volume of the Talmud and now just be open to what it actually says, not what I think it's saying. Wow. 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 So interesting because you don't see the same necessarily for Sephardic, um, of Jews of Sephardic descent because no. that wasn't the cultural reality. Correct. Very, uh, very Sephardic, Sephardic families are comfortable, no matter how religiously committed they are, they're comfortable with their sons going into business. Yeah. And on the uh, the general Haredi side, they prefer to see their sons going into quote learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now let me ask you because I'm, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with this topic. I'm actually hosting a retreat this Sunday on the topic called the Bitachon Boost Retreat. How yeah, important- do tell me. I, I saw it advertised. Do tell me. Yeah, we're we're doing this because this is this is where I'm going with this. For I've seen time and time again that Bitachon trust in God is really the foundation here of everything. Like I could we could talk about the financial systems and all the good financial moves to have and the habits to build. But without that trust in God, that is so essential to our faith. Like this is this is one of the most powerful things we have in our Jewish toolkit. Everything will crumble. Um, yes. So I would love your take on that. How how important is this bitachon? This bitachon when it comes to our financial success. Okay. Um, yeah, El. By way of an example, it's a silly thing. I'm just making this up. Mm-hmm. A guy goes to the twentieth floor of a building climbs out of the window and falls. And um, he has a very thrilling 10-second ride. 
with a really unhappy ending. Mm-hmm. And he goes before his creator and God says to him, what were you thinking? And he says, what do you mean? What was I thinking? Do you have an idea of how regularly I'm in synagogue? Do you understand how much charity I give? Do you realize what a devoted husband and father I am? Do you realize how much I do for the community? Do you realize that I know most of scripture by heart? What do you mean? What was that? I assumed you'd take care of me. Do you not know that I have faith? (laughs) And what's God's answer? (laughs) I told you that you have to understand how the world works. You have to work in the world. You don't jump out of buildings. This world has a thing called gravity. And I, I have a, uh, a rule in the five books of Moses that you have to guard yourselves. You have to guard your bodies. You have to look after yourself. And you neglected to do that. I'm not going to change the laws of nature because you made a mistake. I don't mind changing the laws of nature to let the children of Israel cross the Red Sea. But that's not what you did. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is exactly the same as people who ask a frivolous and meaningless question. He was such a good man, and yet he suffered in poverty all his life. Well, because there are certain things you have to do in order to escape poverty, and he didn't do them. I will bless you and all that you do. (laughs) Do. It's got nothing to do with the fact that he was a religious guy and he trusted God. This is where the danger of bitachon lies. Mm-hmm. Understanding that you don't have to do what we call hishtadlut. Right. You don't have to do your effort. You don't have to put in, and you've got to do it right. Absolutely. Same way as stepping out of a 20th floor window is a really bad idea. It's also a really bad idea for a person to reach, a man particularly, to reach the age of 26 and have no idea of how he's going to earn a living. It's a really, really bad idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think this gets so misconstrued so often. Um, And that intersection of, and I call it like, I, I don't even know what to call it when people think that that is bitachon. Um, it, it's not. We have to do. We have to do our part in the, if we trust in God, then we trust that he yes. gave us a natural system and we have to right. do things in the natural order. That's our responsibility. Right. Now, the results are his burden, but we have a responsibility to show up and do every day what we need to be doing. And, uh, and, and part of that is serving other people. Yes. Now, when a person says, well, I'm sitting in a study hall studying the Bible, and that's how I serve other people. That's a self-serving narcissistic lie. Mm. Because, you know, it's like the Boy Scout so eager to earn points, he forces little old ladies to cross streets they didn't want to cross because he wants to get a badge for helping people cross the street. Uh, If people don't desire your service then it is not a service. Mm. And money is one of the ways we reveal what we value. Yep, 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 yep. So, Another uh, one, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I, it's just, uh, if you're not learning that you have to serve other people and not by doing what you want to do. Right. Doing what you need to do. Uh, I, I want to just make clear, we have to rule out the people who say, I'm serving people by, by studying. No, that's not true. You're serving yourself by studying. Very nice, but don't make the mistake of thinking you're fulfilling your, your obligation. You're not. Right, right. Beautiful, beautiful. There's another big one, um, and then we'll start wrapping it up, which I think somehow um, I found that for American Jewry, what we're, as Jews, we're genetically, spiritually, we are giving people. There's no question. We are givers, right? And the notion of tzedakah is like heavily ingrained in us and in a beautiful way. But I have found throughout my work that and one of the things that was a turning point in my life, on my husband's life, um, when it came to our finances, was the practice of miser, of tithing properly, systematically. And surprisingly (laughs) enough, I found that somehow this 
got watered down or got mushed into the idea of tzedakah when they're not exactly the same. And this is a non-negotiable type of system. So I'd love for you to help the audience with this and make it clear for them, because I think they get very mixed up and not not too many people are doing it properly. Look, it's very simple. 10% of your income isn't yours. It never was. (laughs) It never was. Um, And I say you should be very grateful because not everybody gets to work for a boss that lets you keep a 90% commission. Exactly. 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 So we have to build it into our system and it has to become automatic. You know, it's like. And what's more, not that this is why we should do it, but uh, everybody who begins to practice it properly um, re- discovers that it helps their revenue, doesn't hurt it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the promise is clear and God definitely delivers on the promise. So that serve that as an encouragement for if you don't, if you still don't have a system of tithing and you haven't opened a separate account, like I recommend just so you automate that, that giving into that account. And then you obviously distribute, you know, as often as you can and the yeah. more often the better, but, um, you know, just go ahead and do it now, Rabbi, um, any financial habits that you practice quote unquote, religiously that help you with your finances? Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm probably, um, I'm not a necessarily a typical person, uh, you know, for, for obvious reasons. I've been, I've been doing this for a few years already. Um, but one of the things I would say is that, um, um, you know, you can't change anything you don't measure. Mm. So if you want to lose weight, for heaven's sake, get a scale. It's not going to happen if you don't have a scale. And then keep a record. You know, weigh yourself at the same time every day and write it down. And then you stand a chance. Well, the same thing is true with money. The number of people who don't know how to keep financial records and how to read financial statements, um, it's you got to stop that. This isn't this isn't rocket science. Um, there are courses online. There are books. Spend a few dollars and get trained in how to keep a record of money. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I really do think everybody should be engaged in some kind of money-making enterprise. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, I think even high school kids should be making money. They, they shouldn't be given everything. And they, they will really thank you one day if you give them opportunities to earn money, not to just have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I always tell, I always say, listen, and and teach them obviously to give right away Meister from it and to save and to invest, teach them the power of investing. You know, there's no reason why an eight, a 10 year old already shouldn't know that if we put some of your money that you earn babysitting or being a mother's helper, whatever it might be, or your Hanukkah guilt in an investment account for you, it's going to grow. You don't, you know, these are important lessons. Exactly. That kids find them very exciting and it's, it's fabulous. They do. But the problem is that you and I are dealing with men and women who did not get these lessons in childhood. Right. We're dealing with men and women, in some cases, many cases, who are now even married. And the financial dysfunction is, uh, is, is very serious. And I, I will say to, to, to that, I don't even think that I got this in childhood. I think I worked really hard and had my own financial mistakes along the way, despite being a professional, despite having a business degree and an economics degree. And I really stepped up to the plight. And I said, I have to be a, a mature adult. I have to educate myself. This is, yeah. you know. No, uh, academic degrees say nothing to this. Nothing. Absolutely. Nobody is worse with money than the uh, tenured faculty of Ivy League universities. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Rabbi, let's do what I called some Jewish money matters fill in the blanks. And this is the part of the show where I'm going to give you an open ended sentence and you're going to fill it with the first thing that comes to mind. Don't overthink it. okay? All All right. right. When I give Meiser or Tzedakah, I like to give to Uh, places, recipients where the uh, effect is beneficial and visible. It is actually a lot harder than people think to give money away without causing more harm than help. Wow. Wow. Something I wish I'd learned about money growing up is? That it's important. Something I splurge on unapologetically is? Uh, Boating. 
Mm, I, nice. I grew up by the ocean, so I could totally appreciate that. <laughs> um, Motor or sail? Uh, we started off with sail, and now it's now it's uh, our family vacations are always afloat. Aha, so. uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, I grew up on sailboats. Also, all right. Yeah. Um, um, oh, I, I don't. I don't call it splurging. The way I put it is that uh, I spent a huge amount of money on boating, but the rest I wasted. <laughs> Um, today, I'm most grateful for my family. Beautiful. And finally, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I believe Jew- Jewish money matters because? Because it's one of the five fundamental elements that add to the fullness of life. Beautiful. What are the other four? Faith, family, friendships, physical fitness. Nice. Them, Rabbi Lappin. Mm-hmm. The five F's. Absolutely marvelous. Tell us where we can find you, where we can be in touch. You're so prolific. You have so much content out there. How can we be in touch with you? Um, the best thing is my website, Yael, uh, which is uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Beautiful. And we'll put that on the show notes. And we'll. Wonderful. You, when is that new book coming out? You sound like my publisher. <laughs> no pressure, Rabbi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, hopefully before the end of the year. Amazing. We'll keep an eye on that. Keep us posted. Let us know. And we'll sure to spread the word. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. It's a Um, pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. And I hope we have an opportunity to talk more. And best regards again to your husband, please. We'll do. And same to Susan. I hope I get to meet her in person one day. You will. Yeah, you will. Wow. Was that insightful or what? Thanks to Rabbi Daniel Lappin for stopping by. You can find him on his website, RabbiDanielLappin.com, where you can access his podcast, his TV show, online courses, and so much more. Thank you all for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. Lots of mic drop moments there, right? And lots to think about. Would you be so kind as to leave a review and a rating? We shall be picking a reviewer of the week every Friday on our Ask Yael episodes, and that reviewer will get a chance for us to get to know each other in person well sort of in person but yes it is fun to get to chat about what's on your mind whether it be your financial life your married life your business your parenting anything that you want to talk about i'm here for all of it all you have to do is leave a review on your itunes app and you might get selected on friday's episode i hope you have a wonderful week and i'll be back here tomorrow with one of our mini sods have a great day thanks for listening to jewish latin princess podcast if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe on itunes Leave a rating and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.